We're going to continue uh, through a time of teaching, and I know that back when I was teaching through Genesis and we got to the story of Jacob and Joseph, one of the things you learn from me from this is favoritism within a family dynamic can be very destructive. But, but I'm going to confess to you this morning, in my extended family, there were people that were more favored to me than other people were, and I don't mean this as a slight against anybody else, but for years, you know, I built houses with my dad, and my dad's older brother was named Hugh. My Uncle Hugh and I, uh, Amanda didn't get to know him real well, but she knew him slightly. My Uncle Hugh and I were like this. Man, we were buds. Even though I had many other uncles and they were great men, my dad's older brother and I were tight. Now, when we were building houses, this was during the time when the A-Team was still on TV. Does anybody remember when the A-Team was still on TV? Not, not the new movie remake. I'm talking about the original. You know, Mr. T., and George Papard as Hannibal, you know, Colonel Hannibal. Well, in case you don't know the storyline there, this was a group of Special Forces guys. They were now out of the military. They had been wrongly charged with a crime, and they became like modern-day Robin Hoods. They went all around the United States bailing people out who were in need. And Hannibal, Colonel Hannibal Smith, was known for one line in particular. They would put together these complicated plans with all these moving parts, and when this thing was pulled off to extravagance, just as he had planned... Here was his famous line. Everybody remembers, right? I put it on the board for you. Here's what he would say every time. I love it when a plan comes together. Did I mention that my Uncle Hugh was a fan of the A-team? Well, let me tell you, my Uncle Hugh and I built houses, and man, we would labor during the summer, 98 degrees with 1,000% humidity in North Mississippi, and we would frame houses, and when you finish the framing of the house, my uncle would stand in the front, and he would go, I love it when a plan comes together. And then we would put the rafters up and put the decking on in 100 degree heat. And I mean, you're just sweating off pounds day after day. And we would get done and he would step back and he'd go, I love it when a plan comes together. And then we would move on the inside and we would hang all the sheetrock and we would finish hanging all the sheetrock and then we would mud the sheetrock and then we would, anybody ever sanded sheetrock? Have you ever seen the dust that comes off? Yeah, okay. So overhead, sanding, anybody ever sanded sheetrock overhead? Okay. So you can picture this, hours of sanding sheetrock overhead, 5,000 square foot home, and we would get done, and we would look like something similar to a powdered donut, you know, with all this stuff on us. And he would stand there, and the only thing I could see would be his eyes blinking in the dust and his mouth moving. He would say, I love it when a plan comes, shut up, you know. And he would do this over and over again, I love it when a plan comes together, because this was his show. Well, here's why I share that with you. You say, well, how can that be related to Scripture? Believe it or not. At the end of Acts chapter 5, where we are today, we're going to start teaching there in verse 33. The apostles are right where we left them two weeks ago. You're like, you're magic. How do you pull that off? Yeah, we just stopped time, right? So, so when we left, and, and I went on the trip with the SMO students, we left our apostles. They're standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and if you don't remember, they had been preaching the word of Jesus. They've been told not to preach the word of Jesus. They were thrown in jail, and the greatest miraculous jailbreak. Man, you think Alcatraz is the story. No, that's not the story. The story comes from Acts chapter 5 when an angel busted them out of jail, literally, supernaturally, busts them out of jail, and he tells them one thing, go back and start preaching again. So what do they do? They go back and start preaching again. That's where we left them, because now they've been brought back in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin has reached a point emotionally that is about to tip over the scale. I'm talking about to the point of murder. They're not thinking logically, they're acting emotionally, they want to kill these two men because there's some political ramification at stake, and we'll talk about that, but here's the only deal. 
in the midst of that same group of people, one of the wisest men that you'll ever meet in the New Testament. I'll introduce him to you today if you have not read about him. His name is Gamaliel. This is the guy who trained Paul, the Apostle Paul who was then called Saul, who was trained to be a Pharisee. This is his master teacher. Gamaliel was a Pharisee who was a part of the Sanhedrin. And he steps up and he says, hey, hang on just a minute. Before you're about to do what you're thinking you're going to do, I need to challenge you a little bit. You need to make sure that what these guys are doing is man's plan, is not God. If it's man's plan, don't worry, it's going to fail. But if it's God's plan, you don't want to be found fighting against the Lord. And so here's a guy who's not a Jesus lover. But here's a guy who is a God lover. He's a follower of Yahweh. And he steps up with great wisdom and authority. He says, wait a minute. You don't want to fight against God. And so church, that leads us to the central theme of our text this morning. If you don't take anything out of here, other than this, this is the thing you've got to take out of here. That we as Christ followers must be careful to never oppose the plan of God, the will of God. And we're going to talk about this since that's so important. So if this is the key, if this is so important that we don't oppose God, how do we know it's of God then? And so that's where we want to end today. How do we know that the plan that I'm a part of, that I'm carrying out, that I'm following, pursuing, whatever it is, how do I know that plan is of God so I know that I'm not opposing God? So so I'm going to throw this out at you, and then how we're going to close today is this. How do you know? How do you recognize it? What does the Bible teach us? And believe it or not, Gamaliel gives us great wisdom. Here he is. Here he is. Nearly 2,000 years ago, a Jewish Pharisee, And he is still giving the church wisdom. That's how powerful God is. I'm going to use this guy who loves Yahweh, and I'm going to take his wisdom, and I'm going to teach the church with it. And so today, that's how we want to close. We want to figure out what are the signs of God's plan. How do we know if we're following along with the Lord or not? So pray with me as we get ready to teach. Father, we we do pause and come before you with the act of worship called prayer. As Lord, we speak to you because when we speak to you, here's why it's worship, because we're speaking to you as though you're there, not just an empty space in time. We're speaking to you as an individual because, Father, we truly trust that you are real, that you are listening, that you are heeding. And so, Father, that's an act of worship. That's an act of expressing faith. And so, Father, we come to you today not just voicing worship to you, not just singing songs to you, not just saying a prayer to you, but, Father, we come to you today asking for something that will help us worship even better. Father, we ask you for the gift of wisdom, which we often do when we open up this text. For Father, we know that this text was actually authored by you, your Holy Spirit, a supernatural being, and I'm a very finite, fixed being. And because your wisdom is unlimited and mine is very limited, Lord, we ask for your wisdom, not only for me to teach this according to your plan and your purpose, but Father, that we would receive this according to your plan and your purpose, for we trust this. You say this about your very word. As you set it out, it will accomplish exactly what you set it out to do. So Lord, we ask that you would accomplish much today, that in my own spiritual journey, you would continue to grow me into the image of Christ Jesus. That in our collective spiritual journey, you would grow us in obedience and faithfulness And that, Father, the truth that you speak to us today would be just that. It would be truth that we would cling to and live by. And, Father, we pray this collectively in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. If you would start reading with me there in verse 33 of chapter 5. When they heard this, okay, so the they, that's the Sanhedrin, the 70 most powerful men in all of Israel. Remember, there's two primary groups. There's a third, if you want to count the high priest and his his little clonies that are there. There's a few of them. 
But there's two primary groups that make up the Sanhedrin. You've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember the Sadducees. They only believed the first five books of the Bible as being authoritative. They were not liked by the people, but they were liked by the Romans. They were very powerfully wealthy because they were attached to the Roman government. So what they did not want to do was in any way disturb Rome. Here's the problem. You've got two dudes talking about Jesus. Jesus is not Judaism. Yes, he's a Jew, but he does not represent Judaism. Thus, he represents a brand new religion. Here's the Roman law. No new religions. I want to keep my money. I want to keep my power. So you two dudes must shut up now. And so that's the Sadducees. Then you've got the Pharisees. Here's the other side of the scale. They not only believe the first five books of the Old Testament, they accept all of the Old Testament. They believe in resurrection and life after death. They believe in angels. They believe in the Spirit's presence, the supernatural. The Sadducees did not. They were not connected politically to the Romans, but they were loved by the Jewish people, so they had popular vote in their back pocket. And so you got these two groups that can't stand each other, but the one person they hated more was this guy named Jesus. And now these two, group, these two guys won't shut up about Jesus. And so they've got a dilemma. What are we going to do? Because here's what they just heard. Remember how we just started? He said, when they heard this, what this did they hear? Here's what they heard. We can't stop talking about Jesus. We, we don't care that you put us in jail. In case you didn't notice, angel busted us out. We can't stop talking about Jesus. And so, so notice the response then. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Okay, so this is not just enraged. <clears throat> this is the Greek word diaprio. Diaprio means to be sawn in half, cut to the quick. And, and so here's what this means. This is one of those emotions that's so strong that all logical reasoning has left you. Let me give you an example. You know, you, you, Lance, you, you can relate to this. You got your lawnmower jacked up. You've taken it apart piece by piece, and you've got the new piece you're about to put on, and Amazon sent you the wrong thing. At that point, I'm sawn in two, and, and, and I'm not in a happy place. I'm not thinking logically. I'm kicking stuff all around my garage, cats, dogs. It doesn't matter what comes along. It's just, you know, I'm just kicking at that point. Well, this is where they are. They're, they're, they're furious. They're not thinking logically. They're processing emotionally. We've talked about that before. If you process only emotionally, typically the result is going to be very bad. It's normally going to be dangerous. And so this is the processing that's taking place. But a Pharisee, all right, so Luke is a doctor. He's the author of this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He wants you to know his class. He wants you to know that he's a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, because that means we got this faction going on, Sadducees, Pharisees. He could care less about political correctness, but he cares a whole lot about making God happy. And so this lets you know his character. Gamaliel is one of these solid people who is truly seeking after wisdom. So a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people. Okay, the word respected there is the word timio in Greek. And what it means is valued or precious. And when it says all the people, here's what's important. Remember, he's a Pharisee. Luke points that out. When he says all the people, guess how many of the people he means? All the people. So this dude carries clout even among the Sadducees. That was unheard of. When you've got a Pharisee who is respected by the Sadducees, this is a very unique man. Let me give you an idea how unique he is. I mentioned to you he was the teacher of Paul. He was the most recognized teacher of his era, but, but he had a pedigree that was about this long. His granddaddy was Hillel. And you go, was that important? I'm like, here's how important that is. Hillel is the most known Jewish rabbi of the entire Roman Empire. He is the most known. In fact, there was a local seminary. They didn't call it seminary. It was rabbinical school. There was a local seminary, rabbinical school, and guess who it was named after? Old good great-granddaddy Hillel. 
And so here you got a guy following in the shoes of his granddad who was the most respected rabbi of the entire Roman Empire. And so he's got clout. He's got lots of clout. Let me show you just how much power this guy actually had. Notice, he stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered that the men be taken outside for a little while. And you go, so what's the big deal? In case y'all don't know Sanhedrin rules, there's one guy and one guy alone that can excuse the accused. You know who that is? The high priest. His name is not Gamaliel. His name is Annas. The acting high priest was Caiaphas, which was against God's law, but you got two high priests and that just messes up everything. But notice who's running the show. Neither high priest. You got a guy named Gamaliel, virtually appointed by God, who's about to do an incredible teaching that here we are in 2019, nearly 2,000 years later, still talking about. That's how powerful his teaching is about to be. So I want you to listen very carefully to what he's about to say. Verse 30, 35. <clears throat> He said to them, men of Israel, so this is the Sanhedrin he's talking to, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Verse 36, some time ago, Thevdus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. Okay, so Thevdus we don't know a whole lot about. Here's what I can tell you. Thevdus is a very common Hebrew name. There were probably multiple Thevduses over the years. But this particular Thevdus claimed to be somebody. That's a way of writing in Greek that means he claimed to be God. So probably Thevdus claimed to be the Messiah. So, so more than likely, uh, you guys remember Waco and David Koresh. David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah. That was, that was his claim. Thevdus probably made the exact same claim, that he was the, the Messiah that all the Jews were waiting for. He had 400 followers, and, and notice what he said. So, so remember, he's talking about following God's plan, making sure God's not behind it. He, Thevdus, was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. All right, so the word follower is very important here. We come into this room, and many times I will say something like Christ's follower. If you're a Jesus lover, you're a Christ follower. The word follower is pitho in Greek, and it means to be persuaded or convinced with certainty. Here's what your pastor is persuaded and convinced with certainty about, that Jesus is the very Son of God. That's why I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Christ follower. Why? Because I am persuaded and convinced that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Now, now understand, this false Messiah, this Thevdus rose up, and he had his own followers. In fact, 400 of them. But notice exactly what was emphasized by Gamaliel. He died. They were all dispersed. And get this, they came to nothing. He's going to make a statement in just a minute about if it's man's plan and not of God, you know how it ends every time? In nothing. It becomes nothing. And so he continues with another example. After this man, so after Thevdus, Judas the Galilean. Hey, I want to stop right there for a minute. Does anybody have a text that says Judas of Gamala? Maybe not. There, there are two different translations that say Gamala instead of Galilean. And believe it or not, there's people who will attack our scriptures and say, see right there, there's an error. That's why you can't believe this. That's why we can prove to you it's not true. See right there, one, one text says Galilean, the other one says Gamala. Let me explain that to you real quick in case you ever come across that. Galilean is the Jewish designation. So you've got a Jewish rabbi speaking about a Jewish traitor or one who has rebelled. So how does he refer to him? As a Galilean. However, you do know the Septuagint. Septuagint is the, is the Greek 
version of the Hebrew Bible. The Septuagint uses Gamala. Here's why. The Septuagint was written by people that were speaking Greek. So they were influenced by Rome. Gamala was the Roman designation for where Galilee was located. So Galilee is a Jewish designation. Gamala is a Roman designation. Neither is incorrect. Both refer to the exact same place. And so the people who would attack our scriptures and say, hey, look, I've got an error for you right here, they haven't studied very well. Because this is no error at all. You can say Galilean or Gamala, and it refers to the exact same era. So again, there, there is no error in this area that's being spoken of. He rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. Now notice this. He didn't say they came to nothing. Here's why. Those followers who scattered, those were known as the zealots. And in case y'all don't remember, one of the very followers of Jesus was a zealot. Y'all remember that? So, so was part of this rebellion. In fact, most commentators believe Judas Iscariot was a member of the zealots. Even though Scripture doesn't say it, Josephus in his writings outside the Scriptures identified Judas as a zealot. And so that would have motivated him. All right, so if I think you're Messiah, then you start telling me that you're going to be destroyed by the Roman government and I'm a zealot and my only desire is to overthrow the Roman government, then you're out as my Messiah. And that's pretty much what happened. Judas betrayed Jesus because he lost faith in him that he was the Messiah. And so you've got this guy who was probably a zealot, who was a rebellious group that was started by Judas the Galilean or Judas of Gamala. But notice that there's a theme going here. Okay, so Thevdas, he was killed. They came to nothing. Judas the Galilean, he also perished. His followers are scattered. So look at verse 38. He comes to a very wise conclusion, and this is where our text goes. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. And so if you star, highlight, underline, mark this in your text, this very next sentence I'm about to read to you. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. Catalio, fail. It means it will come to nothing. It will come to an end. It will be destroyed. Let me go ahead and clarify for you. If you are chasing after any other plan than what God has for you, it will end in misery. I didn't get an amen one. Let me tell you this one more time. If you are pursuing any other plan than the one God has for you, it will end in nothingness. I told you at nine years old, as I stood at the back of Hurricane Baptist Church, that's all God showed me. I knew he was calling me to be saved, that he had given me the gift of faith and was wooing me into salvation. And as I stood at the back door and looked out into the pitch black darkness of that sky, this is all God communicated to me. He didn't scare me. He didn't show me a satanic face. All he said to me was this, if you walk away from me, that is what you receive, nothing. And so at nine years old, I wasn't the brightest of all children, but I was bright enough to know I didn't want nothing. I wanted something, and his name was Jesus. And so if you're chasing after anything else you think this world can give you, but yet is in disagreement with God's total plan, it will end with nothingness. That is exactly what Gamaliel said. And he's talking to the most powerful men of his day, and he says it without any apology. He says it without any fear to them. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be fighting against God. Please hear me. 
no matter what difficulty you brought into this room, we're going to talk about that if you're on God's track, it's got to have sacrifice. That's one of the signs. No matter what difficulty you're laboring through right now, if you're refusing to stray away from God, if you're staying with Him, difficulty is promised, it's going to come. But here's what I can tell you. Satan himself can't overthrow where you're being taken. He cannot set up a roadblock that's going to stop you from getting to where God's taking you. He can't do it. Now, he's going to call you out. Remember what Peter said? Satan is like a roaring lion. We talked about this before. When do male lions roar? Two times. When they've made a kill, Satan cannot destroy me. In fact, Jesus says, you can't be snatched from my hand. So he's not roaring because he's killed me. He can't have me. You know why he's roaring? Here's why male lions roar the second time. is to call out their challengers. Satan wants to take you on. You know what the good news is? Jesus is going to punch him right in the mouth when I get there. Not me. That's why Peter said, you watch him. He said, you're not ready for him. He said, but Jesus is. He's already kicked him once, and he's going to take care of him again. And so again, Gamaliel is pointing out this. Hey, if these men are of God, you can't stop it. So I want you to be very careful. So notice, they were persuaded by him. Verse 40, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged. Okay, so flogged is not flogged. Uh, Flogged is not what I got. I got spankings when I was a kid. That's not flogging. This is the word dero in Greek, and it actually means beaten. Let me explain to you what beaten means. Uh, This is the tool that would have been used. Typically, the handle was about two feet in length. It had anywhere from three to 11 different leather straps. Now, this was not the cat of nine's tails that Jesus was beaten with by the Romans. They were the only ones allowed to use that, that had glass and it had metal pieces and rock in it. This was just straight leather. However, I don't know if you've ever been hit by by a leather strap before. All right, so, so you're taking this leather strap. And what the Jews had was this punishment called the 40 lashes minus one. 40 is a number in Scripture that talks about completion, like being in the wilderness 40 days. It's a complete time of testing. And so to show that they were merciful, they would give you 39 lashes. They called it the 40 lashes minus one. You know how many times Paul received it in his resume? Go back and read his resume in Corinthians. He received it five times. Paul got the 40 lashes minus one five times. All right, so now you got Peter and John are about to get it. Let me tell you how it would work. Okay, so let's say Caleb is is my subject here. They would have them take off their shirt. And and unlike this picture where they're holding on to a piece of wood, no, you knelt down, and for every blow across the bare chest, then they moved to the back, and there were two blows to the back. Josephus records, Josephus the historian, the Jewish historian, wasn't a Christ follower, but he was a Jewish historian. He records that many times men died from this. They would go into shock and not recover. They would lose consciousness and not come back. And so again, one blow to the chest, two to the back until we reach 39. And we're merciful, we won't hit you with the 40th. And so they had them flogged. Why were they busted out of jail? Man, you can't be thrown in jail by the Sanhedrin and not get punished. This makes us look bad. So they had to do something to him. So they listened to Gamaliel and didn't kill them, but yet they called them back in. So we're talking about sacrifice. Do you think this was a sacrifice? The answer is yes. They ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin. Hey, if you underline or highlight, circle this. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. 
The word shamefully is the word for disgrace. See, for Jews, it was a disgrace for the religious Sanhedrin to convict you of something because that meant you had offended God. Remember, this group of 70, they were to be the closest men to God. There should be nobody any closer to God than this group of 70. And so if they convicted you of a wrong and had you flogged, that meant you had offended God. Not just them, you had offended God. This was disgraceful. Notice, they leave the Sanhedrin and they're rejoicing. Can you imagine? 40 lashes minus one and you come out rejoicing. You're, you're in great joy. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think during this same moment they're feeling lots of physical pain? Yeah, so I don't want you to ever confuse joy and happiness. Happiness is an emotional feeling. Joy is a state of being. I can be in absolute joy and yet be very unhappy. When I preached my dad's funeral, I was very unhappy emotionally, but I was in great joy because my dad was no longer suffering and I know he was a follower of Jesus. When, when Caleb was diagnosed with leukemia, I was very unhappy, but yet I was in great joy because the Lord communicated to me, he's not yours, he's mine, I got him. And so there's joy in spite of this emotional unhappiness that kind of lets you know when you're on the path. When you're still joyful in the midst of your sorrow, that lets you know you're pursuing after the right thing. And so these men leave after being beaten and they are rejoicing. Verse 42, every day in the temple and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It closes out with a statement of obedience. Church, here's the key. When I'm seeking after God's plan, and I believe I have found God's plan, then it must close with one response from me, and the response must be obedience, no matter what we think the cost is going to be. Watch this. My dad had been sick with cancer for a long time, and that was the one thing I was very selfish about. I, I didn't want to give up my relationship with my dad. I didn't want him to, to, to pass away, and I, just, I wanted to hang on to that relationship as long as I could. I can only imagine... That was one of the reasons why I wouldn't surrender to the ministry because for some reason I felt like if I did this and something was going to happen to my dad and so I avoided it at all costs. And I had a lot of conversations with my father about where God was taking me and stuff like that. And he encouraged me a lot about just, you know, follow Christ because my dad was one that didn't for most of his life. You know, a lot of his life was he was very unsatisfied and very disappointed, but he fell in love with Jesus those last few years. When my father passed away with cancer when I was 19, you know, something happened in my life where I realized that I could give up the most important thing in my life and still, and I found myself embracing Christ. I moved to a church in Florida and worked as a youth intern there for a little while. And through that, uh, got a chance to go overseas with a group called All Star Missions out of Tulsa. That was the first time that I really got in front of a, you know, a couple hundred students and just, and, and just saw God move and just saw a response I'd never seen before. I knew I was called to the music ministry, and I knew I was called to be a worship leader. And you know, back then, being a worship leader, if you're not involved in the church, there's not much of a living to it. But I remember flying home and talking to Jim, our keyboard player, about, you know, what if God's calling us to do this full time? And so we got home from Switzerland and uh, started Mercy Me in 94. We're called to glorify Christ, and we were very, very passionate about it. We were doing youth groups, Wednesday nights, Sundays, whatever we get our hands on, and we used to joke around about, you know, we'd do a show for Taco Bell and Directions Home if they'd let us. And, and we never had any idea how it was going to turn out and the way it's gone. And, but we're, we've just passed, I got our eighth year anniversary of being together. And, and uh, we were able to make a living at it. It wasn't much of one. I mean, I married my wife and I was making, I think, $10,000 a year and thought I was doing pretty good for myself. 
almost two years ago, we signed a record deal, and uh, and things just kind of took off. And uh, you know, we we knew that God had called us to what we're doing, but had no idea where He was going to take us. Long before all the success came, this was the joy of my life. This is what God had called me to do. I'm right where God wants me, and and just I love it. There we go. I'm back. Man, that's crazy, isn't it? Technology is great when it works. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm full of joy. I'm right where God wants me. But is that how his ministry surrender started? You hear what he said? I was very selfish. My dad was ill, and I was afraid if I left, I was going to lose him, so I refused. Here's a guy called into ministry. Now, let me give you a little background about Bart. They got together in 94, he mentioned eight years later. So when this video was filmed, this was 2000. This was in 2000. It was 19 years ago. They have sold multi-platinum albums, millions upon millions upon millions of albums. They have toured the entire world, leading people in worship, all because he reached a point from his own dad when his dad said, no, you must pursue after Jesus. Lord, I appreciate that you love me and that you want to stay with me and that you're afraid if you chase after this, there's something going to happen to me, but you've got to listen. Listen to me, son. Family does not trump Jesus. Jesus himself said, God wrote in the Ten Commandments, you will have no other gods before me. That includes your daddy or your mama or your kids or your husband or your wife or your job or your hobbies. You will have no other gods including you before me. And he said, because my dad loved Jesus, he had the courage to tell me that. No, you need to pursue after Jesus. And so what Bart already recognized, church, was the sign of his plan, what God's path was for him. Some of you may be here today, though, and struggling, and so I want to challenge you to this. I want to challenge you to the idea we must recognize the signs of the plan. God, listen, God, God is supernatural and he's spiritual. The Bible says worship God in spirit, but God is so practical, and he will give us some practical guides to help us to understand when we're pursuing after the right things. Okay, so let me give you just a few of those. Number one, we can't exhaust the list today, but this is where we're going to go. Number one, if it's part of God's plan, it will be biblically correct. That, that This is number one. There's a reason why I listed that first. If there is ever disagreement in what you're contemplating doing with the very words of Scripture, stop right there. If whatever you're pursuing is in difference with scripture you are incorrect you are wrong i've had people come and sit in my office and say hey god led me to do this and i point out to them okay what you're saying god led you to do i can point to you in scripture and show you that the outcome of what you're going to do is going to be sin you do understand god will never lead you to sin and so either you misread god or you're just being in sin and selfish I've had some people acknowledge it, some people not acknowledge it. But church, I'm telling you this, if what you're pursuing after is going to lead or result in a sinful outcome, it is not of God, it is of you. And here's what God just said through the words of Gamaliel, I will shut it down. I will destroy it. Gamaliel said it will fail. Only God's plan is eternal. Man's plan, please hear me, as great as our civilization is, you do understand at some point the United States of America will cease to exist. And I think it's the greatest that's ever existed. Even in comparison with the Roman Empire, I think it's the greatest that's ever existed. Because the Roman Empire was not founded on Christian principles, we were. And yet, let me tell you this. It is still of man. 
And someday this will cease to exist. What is the only thing that's permanent? Christ Jesus and the kingdom of God. He says everything else is going to burn up and go away. And so if you want your plan to be something that has eternal consequences and outcome and impact and influence that means something for somebody when they leave this earth, it cannot be in contradiction with Scripture. That is rule number one. Number two, it has to include careful thought. If you're a person who responds immediately based on the emotion that you're feeling, you're in danger of being against God. God is a rational thought being. He he has rational thought. Tide comes in, tide goes out. Seed in the ground, plant comes up. This is how it works. This is how it works. God's very practical. And, And so if you're one of those people who I say the first thing that comes to my mind, no you're not, you're saying the first thing that you feel. Because if you take time to think about what you're about to say, you would probably bite your tongue. And so what I'm saying is, if you're following God's plan, it will be thought out. Now that doesn't mean supernaturally through His Spirit, He won't give you a sense of direction. I believe God does that. In fact, I think Amanda experiences that more so than I do. She has a great sense of discernment. I have to really analyze and think through it from years of experience of law enforcement and all that stuff. Amanda has more of a sense, I think, that she senses things through the Spirit sometimes. And I've learned over 20 plus years to start to listen to some of that stuff. Even though it's not me, it's not my giftedness, and I'm not wired very emotionally in that way. But, but I, I've come to learn when she says, oh, I just had this, Ugh. I've learned to go, oh, when she does. Then I start trying to justify it, you know, through the thought process, because that's how I process. But please hear me, it has to have thought. If, if it's God's plan, if it's God's plan, think through this. He will show you that it's His plan, and it will never contradict His Word. Number three, it's usually historically repeated. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, and what that is referring to is man's experience. So anything that you've experienced, probably you know somebody else that's been through it. It's usually historically repeated. We are fools. Please hear me. I'm saying this very boldly. We are fools when we don't call upon somebody else who's experienced some things and draw from their experience and their wisdom. God places people like that in our path. He helps us. Uh, Literally, when when Karen Hart, Karen Hart was your first contact with me. She was on our search committee. Brett was the chair, but Karen was my first phone call. And Karen told me she was from Forsyth, and I'm looking out at Amanda going, Forsyth, Missouri. I had forgotten that it was close to Branson. Once she said it was Branson, I knew where you were at that point. Okay, so, so, so I get off the phone with Karen. It was a very positive conversation, but at this point, I have no clue. You know, am I gonna be out of Texas and be in Missouri? I don't know. But, but I contacted two friends of mine. I said, hey, I want you to go to this website. I want you to look at it. I want you to pray about this with me. One of the guys I contacted was the guy who married Amanda and I. He preached my dad's funeral with me. I did the message, and, and he did the eulogy part. He preached my ordination sermon. And, and so I just said, hey, I, I just want you, to, I want you to tell me what God shows you. Just go and look, and I want you to pray. And I just want you to get back with me and tell me, am I on the right path? Am I pursuing the right thing? I've got an opportunity to stay here in Texas in a full-time role, leave law enforcement, go back to the church that we were serving in, or it looks like I'm going to develop a relationship with this church in Missouri where I don't know a soul, don't have any idea where I'm taking my family. What do you think? And 
he and his wisdom and the other person I contacted, a guy named Corey Kane, who I just trust, and then Brian Lark, who y'all know we've partnered with, everybody kept giving me the same response. I mean, I just, I think God's all over this. I think that you just had, you had no contact there. You had no way of swaying it. I think the Lord is all over this. And so again, historically, things tend to be repeated and leads to number four. If it's God's plan and correct, believe it or not, it's usually recognized by other Christ followers as correct. But here's the part I love. When we're not on God's path, that is typically recognized by God followers too. And we would be very wise to pause. And when those God followers come to us and say, hey, dude, this ain't right. We'd be very wise to listen. Because history does get repeated. And repeatedly through the, through the text, through the Bible, we see people coming to godly people with information saying, hey, you're not on the right path. This is not of God. We see Samuel doing that even with David. Nathan coming to David. And so, so we see God doing this. Number five, it requires a sacrifice. Please hear me. Uh, I love Bart's story. Man, we would have played for Taco Bell and Directions Home. That's sacrifice, y'all. I was making $10,000 a year, thought I was doing great. Sacrifice. But see, it's far more than money. It's far more than money. It means enduring your household sometimes being chaotic when you didn't actually raise it to be. It includes sticking with your spouse when they have failed miserably. It includes sticking with your job, even though it's hard, and not leaving it until God opens up another door. You, would, you have no clue how many people come into this office on a weekly basis who have had jobs and quit because they didn't like working night shifts or working here, and now they want the church to pay their bills. Remember practical thinking? Sacrifice. Keep doing your best in honor and for the glory of the Lord wherever He has placed you until He opens up another door for you. You keep serving even though emotionally it keeps hurting. You stay courageous even though the prognosis and the diagnosis is very grim. You stay courageous. And then finally, if it is of God, get this, it will cause you joy. I did not say make you happy. God is not Burger King or Walmart. But it will cause you joy when you're on the right path. You will have a sense of joy knowing you have honored the one who made you. Not happiness. Notice the apostles walked out of being beaten, but full of joy. Bart says, I'm making 10,000 bucks a year. But I am so full of joy because I'm right where God has me. So let me ask you this morning, just a couple things. This is where we close. Would you define your life this morning as being characterized by joy? If the answer is no, then I'm going to challenge you further. Let's start searching. Let's start searching for the component of this that's missing. Because if you have no joy and you're a Christ follower, there's a disconnect there because the Spirit of God that has filled you is a spirit of joy. And so if you're not experiencing joy, then there's a disconnect with what you're pursuing. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning you're here and you say, Justin, listen, I don't know why God brought me here to hear this at this time. 
But here's what I know for sure. I want to start this relationship with Jesus that you're talking about. I am not on that path. It's never been God's plan for me. I believe in God. I I, I know that He's real, but I have never pursued His plan. I live life for me. I'm one of the most selfish people you would ever know. But can you tell me how to start this relationship? I, I feel right now inside me, this is the time I'm to start this. The answer is yes. And so let me tell you what's going to happen. In just a few minutes, I'm going to have you stand up and I'm going to pray out loud. And when that prayer's open, if God, and when that prayer's over, if God is leading you to come into fellowship and relationship with Him for the first time, there's going to be some folks standing right over here by this door to my left. So look right over there. We're going to have our prayer response team, and they're going to be over there. And if that is you this morning, and you want more information about becoming a follower of Jesus, remember, follower, persuaded, convinced, I'm persuaded, convinced. If that is you this morning for the first time, I want you to talk to one of our folks in our prayer response team. They're going to do it in a private setting, not in here in front of 400 people. They're going to take you in private, and they're just going to walk you through step by step because it includes careful thought. If you're following Jesus, this needs to be thought out. We want to explain it to you, but maybe you're here and you are a Christ follower. You're devoted, but here's what you would also say. I'm not living in joy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not living in joy. So again, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm going to challenge you during this response time, whether you talk to somebody in our prayer response team, because they'll pray with you over anything. Or you come forward and you fall on your face at this altar, you ask God to reveal to you, what is the disconnect in me? What is it I'm not pursuing or am pursuing that is keeping me from experiencing joy? Have I shied away from sacrifice because I want it with ease? And see, that's, that's our culture. I want to pursue God, but I want it to be easy. I think He's given me this calling, but I want to get there the easiest way possible that benefits me. That's not the plan most of the time. Most of the time it includes a beating. Hard work. I've said this how many times? There's a reason work's called work. You go, we can't count that high. There's a reason it's work. And so this morning, whether it's you coming to know Christ for the first time, whether it's you asking God to reveal to you why there is no joy, or maybe, maybe it's you coming to pray at this altar for somebody else's life. Maybe it's your children, your spouse, a coworker, a friend, maybe a member of this church, and, and you know that their plan right now is a little jumbled. Maybe, maybe not rebellious, but maybe their plan's a little off course. And maybe you just want to come this morning and say, God, show them. Through other people, through your word, through prayer, through your spirit, show them where the path is. Whatever God would have you pray, whatever he'd have you do during this time, this is our moment of response. So stand with me as I, I pray.